From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hi, this is William Gibson. My latest novel is titled Zero History, and it's the third novel in a a three-book set. Two protagonists in in Zero History are Hollis Henry and a rather mysterious character known only as, as Milgram. Both Hollis and Milgram are working for Hubertus Bigand, a a cryptically mysterious Belgian-born media magnate based in London who has a lot of dodgy secret business interests. Milgram has has been rescued from a a decade of, of street addiction to benzodiazepines, tranquilizers. And Big End has sent him off to Basel to to an obscenely expensive and and very weird detox facility where all sorts of strange things have been done to him. But he has, in fact, emerged clean. And in the chapter I'm about to read, Milgram finds his his addiction triggering when he's placed under under stress through having having thought someone who's spoken to him in a cafe is, is a cop as she, in fact, is. Milgram woke, took his medication, showered, shaved, brushed his teeth, dressed, and left the Neo charging but turned on. The UK plug adapter was larger than the phone's charger. Keeping the dressmaker's dummy out of his field of vision, he left the room. In the silent Japanese elevator, Descending three floors, he considered pausing to Google Hollis Henry on the lobby MacBook, but someone was using it when he got there. He wasn't always entirely comfortable with the lobby here, what there was of it. He felt like he might look as though he were here to steal something, though aside from his wrinkled post-flight clothing, he was fairly certain he didn't. And really, he thought, stepping out into Monmouth Street and tentative sunlight, he wouldn't. Had no reason to. Three hundred pounds in a plain manila envelope in the inside pocket of his jacket, and nothing today telling him what he needed to do with it. Still a novel situation to a man of his history. Addictions, he thought, turning right towards Seven Dials' namesake obelisk, started out like magical pets, pocket monsters. They did extraordinary tricks, showed you things you hadn't seen, were fun, but came through some gradual dire alchemy to make decisions for you. Eventually, they were making your most crucial life decisions— And they were, his therapist in Basel had said, less intelligent than goldfish. He went to Café Nero, a tastier alternate reality Starbucks, crowded now. He ordered a latte and a croissant, the latter shipped frozen from Paris, baked here. He approved of that, saw a small round table, being vacated by a woman in a pinstripe suit and swiftly occupied it, looking out at the Vidal Sassoon across the little roundabout where young hairdressers were going in to work. 
Eating his croissant, he wondered what Big End might be up to with designer combat pants. Milgram was a good listener, careful not to let people know it, but Big End's motives and modus eluded him. They could seem almost aggressively random. Military contracting was essentially recession-proof, according to Big End, and particularly so in America. That was a part of it, and perhaps even the core of it, recession-proofing. And Big End seemed centered on one area of military contracting, the one in which, Milgram supposed, Blue Ant's strategic skill set was most applicable. Blue Ant was learning everything it could, and very quickly, about the contracting design and manufacture of military clothing, which seemed, from what Milgram had seen so far, to be a very lively business. And Milgram, for whatever reason or lack of one, was along for the ride. That was what Myrtle Beach had been about. Volunteer armies, the French girl had said, the one who'd worn the plaid kilt at yesterday's meeting in an earlier PowerPoint presentation that Milgram had found quite interesting, required volunteers, the bulk of them young men, who might otherwise be, for instance, skateboarding or at least wearing clothing suggestive of skateboarding. And male streetwear generally over the past 50 years or so, she said, had been more heavily influenced by the design of military clothing than by anything else. The bulk of the underlying design code of the 21st century male street was the code of the previous mid-century's military wear, most of it American. The rest of it was workwear, most of that American as well, whose manufacture had co-evolved with the manufacture of military clothing sharing elements of the same design code and team sportswear. But now, according to the French girl, that had reversed itself. The military needed clothing that would appeal to those it needed to recruit. Every American service branch, she said, illustrating each with a PowerPoint slide, had its own distinctive pattern of camouflage. The Marine Corps, she said, had made quite a point of patenting theirs. Up close, Milgram had found it too jazzy. There was a law in America that prohibited the manufacture of American military clothing abroad. And that was where Big End, Milgram knew, hoped to come in. Things that were manufactured in America didn't necessarily have to be designed there. Outerwear and sporting goods manufacturers, along with a few specialist uniform manufacturers, competed for contracts to manufacture clothing for the U.S. military, but that clothing had previously been designed by the U.S. military, who now, the French girl had said, somewhat breathlessly, as though she were closing in on a small animal in some forest clearing, clearly lacked the newly requisite design skills to do that. Having invented so much of contemporary masculine cool in the mid-century, they found themselves competing with their own historical product, reiterated as streetwear. They needed help, the French girl had said, her mouth clicked, summoning a closing flurry of images 
and they knew it. He sipped his latte, looking out, watching people pass, wondering if he could see the French girl's thesis proven in the garments of this morning's pedestrians. If you thought of it as a kind of pervasive subtext, he decided, you could. Excuse me, someone said. Would you mind if I shared the table? Milgram looked up at this smiling American, ethnically Chinese, in her black sweatshirt, a small plain gold cross, gold-chained, worn atop it, one white plastic barrette visible, as some unsleeping module of addict street alertness hardwired to his very core, crisply announced, cop. He blinked. Of course, you're welcome. Feeling muscles in his thighs bunching tight, readying themselves for the dash out the door, Malfunction, he told the module. Post-acute withdrawal syndrome. Flashback. His limbic brain was grooved for this, like the tracks of the wheels of Conestoga wagons worn ankle-deep in sandstone. She put her sack-like white pleather purse on the table, her plastic-lidded pale blue Café Nero cup beside it, pulled out the chair opposite him and sat, smiled. Embroidered in white on the black sweatshirt were the crescent moon and palm tree of the South Carolina state flag, a bit larger than one of Ralph Lauren's polo ponies. Milgram's buried module instantly extruded an entire dew line of arcane cop-sensing apparatus. Paranoia, his therapist had told him, was too much information. He had that now, as the woman dipped into her purse, brought up a matte silver phone, opened it, and furrowed her brow. Messages, she said. Milgram looked straight into the infinitely deep black pupil that was the phone's camera. Uh-oh, she said. I see I have to run. Thanks, anyway. And up purse under her arm and out into seven dials, leaving her drink. Milgram picked it up, empty, the white lid smudged with a dark lipstick she hadn't been wearing. Through the window he saw her pass an overflowing trash canister from which she had likely plucked this cup for her prop. Quickly crossing the intersection toward Sassoon, vanishing around a corner. He stood straightening his jacket and walked out, not looking around, back up Monmouth Street toward his hotel. As he neared it, he crossed Monmouth diagonally, still moving at a calculatedly casual pace, and entered a sort of brick tunnel that led to Neil's yard, a courtyard gotten up as a kind of New Age mini Disneyland. He bolted through this so quickly that people looked after him, out into Short's Garden, another street. Purposeful pace now, but nothing to attract attention. All the while aware of his addiction, awakened by the flood of stress chemicals, urgently advising him that something to take the edge off would be a very good idea indeed. It was, some newer part of him thought, amazed, like having a Nazi tank buried in your backyard, grown over with grass and dandelions, but then you noticed its engine was still idling. 
Not today, he told the Nazis in their buried tank. Headed for Covent Garden Tube Station through an encyclopedic anthology of young people's shoe stores, spring sneakers tinted like jelly beans. Not good, another part of him was saying. Not good. As much as he wished to appear relaxed, the usual crew of beggars floating in solution on the pavement in front of the station faded at his approach. They saw something. He had again become as they were. He saw Covent Garden as from a great height, the crowd in long acre drawing back from him like magnetized iron filings. Take the stairs, advised the autonomic pilot. He did, head down, never looking back, a unit in the spiral human chain. Next, he'd take the first train to Leicester Square, the shortest journey in the entire system, then back without exiting, having assured himself he wasn't followed. He knew how to do that, but then there were all these cameras and their smoked acrylic spheres, like knock-off courage light fixtures. There were cameras literally everywhere in London. So far, he'd managed not to think about them. He remembered Big End saying they were a symptom of autoimmune disease, the state's protective mechanisms roiding up into something actively destructive, chronic, watchful eyes eroding the healthy function of that which they ostensibly protected. Did anyone protect him now? He took himself through what one did in order to determine that one wasn't being followed. While he did so, he anticipated his immediate return to this station, imagined his ascent in the elevator's dead air where a dead voice would repeatedly advise him to have his ticket or pass ready. He would be calmer then. Then to restart the day as planned, go to Hackett and King Street, buy pants and a shirt. Not good, said the other voice, causing his shoulders to narrow, bone and sinew tightening almost audibly. Not good. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.